So, um, as some of you are aware, because um, I talk about it a lot, my two favorite places in the world, in no particular order, are going to the beach or going to Disney. Now, in all fairness, it's a lot cheaper to go to the beach than it is to go to Disney, so I don't get to go to that favorite place as much as I do the other. But I really like going to Disney, and one of the things I like about it is you have choices. And it kind of scratches an itch for almost everyone. There's a few Grinches in the world. I won't name their names, but uh, they sit on this side of the church. But anyway, um, who aren't crazy about Disney. But for the, but for the rest of us, it, there's, kind of, there's Epcot, which my wife loves, and I really can't stand it all. Uh, there's two rides I love there, and I go do those things. I'm ready to go, and they all want to do all this other stuff, and it's not for me. But, but it is for a lot of people. It's really packed out and crowded. And it's really cool if you like what they offer. There are, there are water parks. There's a couple water parks. If that's kind of your deal, there's, there's, you can go and spend the day doing that. That's one thing I've never done at, down there. Uh, but, they, but they are just jam-packed all the time. There is the Magic Kingdom, the first and original parks down there. It, is my, uh, it ha- houses my favorite ride. Now, there's all kinds of rides at Disney that I love. Uh, my favorite ride, which makes no sense because there's no thrill to it, is the old Peter Pan ride. There's no thrill. I mean, you're not in danger. You're not going fast. But man, I just for some reason, I just love that ride. It's one of the first things I remember about going to Disney. And every year when we go, I want to ride Peter Pan. And if I can, I get a little salty. And then there's Hollywood Studios. Now, Hollywood Studios is my favorite park because it is a ride bonanza. And almost and there's rides, and, the, and all the shows are really cool. But at Hollywood Studios, there's this one particular thing that we kind of stumbled on one year. As this was, as they were preparing to build their kind of Star Wars experience that they're uh, getting ready to open up here soon, if it's not open already. And they had this behind-the-scenes look at Star Wars. And they interviewed people who work on the movie or on the, you know, or for that part of the Disney now, who, were, who do it because they were inspired by that movie in 1977, which if you go back and watch it now, you kind of go, that's not really that big a deal. But in 1977, it was way ahead of its time. And so it tells all these behind-the-scenes stories of people and their lives and how that movie kind of changed their destiny, so to speak. It's a really cool little thing. Uh, It's not kind of a thrilling thing, but it's it's a fun thing to do. Now, for, for, for you and I, as we gather here on Easter Sunday, we have four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And each one tells a little different story. And each one was written kind of to a different audience and for a different reason. And we don't think about all those things. But Matthew, though it's written for all people, at the time was written, it was a letter that was written to a specific audience. It was written mainly to Jews. And Mark was written to a specific audience. And Mark and Matthew are as different as night and day are in their content. Luke and John are as different in content. And John's really interesting because John has a bunch of stuff in it that no, no Matthew, Mark, or Luke don't have in it. So John is unique in that there are some things in there that only appear in that book. But my favorite is Luke. And, and the reason that I like Luke is because of its origin. So the, the guy who wrote Luke did not travel with Jesus. Had, as far as we know, was kind of an observer from afar, but knew a lot of people who hung out with Jesus. Knew a lot of people who spent time with Jesus. And Luke was a doctor. 
and he was a historian, and he was a Gentile. And so we have Matthew, Mark, and John written by Jews, and we have this letter, Luke, that was written to written by a Gentile to a Gentile. And we know that Luke was written to a one human being because of the way it starts. And so let me kind of tell you the background of it really quick. Luke had a friend who was really trying to figure out if Jesus was worth following. You know, he heard all this stuff about Jesus and he'd given his life to Jesus and he came to a point where he started to doubt himself. He came to a point where he started to wonder maybe following Jesus isn't what it's cracked up to be. Maybe there's something more to this life, and maybe that's your story. Maybe you're here today, and you're trying to figure out if Jesus is worth following. And maybe, but maybe you, you think he's worth following, but you have a family member or a friend who's trying to figure it out. You know, is Jesus really worth following? And so Luke wrote this letter, and this is what he says in Luke chapter 1. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness report circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. That last line is really important. So you can be certain, so you can know for sure that the things you've been taught, that this Jesus you've invested your life in, so you can know for absolute certainty that he's worth your life and worth an investment. And so what we discover when we kind of dive into Luke's gospel is he kind of unpacks Jesus' story from a, from a different perspective, but he tells us the same story. You know, you can go to Disney and go to different parks, but it's the same park with the same things, with the same characters, and it tells the same story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell different, have different ways of telling the story, but they tell the same story, and the story is how Jesus arrived as a baby born in Bethlehem, that he walked the earth as fully God and fully man, and we talk about that all the time. We talked about it some last week. So let me just say it again. Jesus was absolutely 100% human, just like us. And he was absolutely 100% God, not like us. And if you spend a lot of time trying to figure that out, um, as, as my son would say, you're going to fry your circuits. Because we we're not meant to figure it out. It's just, it is just a fact. Jesus was perfect. Now, when we say Jesus was perfect, think about this. It means he never had an inappropriate thought. There's a lot of ways we can do right. Most of us really have a hard time controlling our mind. I had an experience in Pooler last weekend with a lady who uh, I pulled out in front of. We didn't collide or anything, and I didn't see her. And she had some very colorful things to say to me when she was leaving. And with a car full of people, and it was very potty mouth. But, you know, it just happened really fast. And I'm guessing she was just said what came natural, I guess. I don't know. Um, I got a laugh out of it. My wife didn't think it was so funny, so we're different that way. Jesus never had a thought that was wrong. Absolutely perfect in every way. Yet he was the one who died on the cross for us. And he did it of his own free will. And so here's what Luke tells us in a nutshell. When you kind of unpack Luke in the life of Jesus, this is what Luke tells us. that Jesus, Jesus endured the worst, which was the cross for us, so that we could experience the best, and that's heaven. Jesus went through the worst, 
the torture and shame and suffering of the cross so that we could have the best, and that's eternal life, and that's heaven. And so as we are here today celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, um, and we're so glad that you decided to be with us this morning, we're going to unpack three truths this morning. That's all we're going to do. And here's the first thing I want you to understand about Jesus that Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John all agree with, and that is that Jesus was exactly who he says he was. Jesus was exactly who he says he was. And who he was is really simple. He was God in flesh and blood, who walked among us, who was perfect, who became the resurrected Savior of the world. That's who he was. Now, there's historical evidence. We always talk about the Bible says, the Bible says, and like in 1 Corinthians 15, we see there's 500 witnesses. 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. 500 people can't, can't keep a... A conspiracy going. Someone's going to crack if it's not true. 500 people saw Jesus. We talk a lot about the Bible says, and, and I heard Andy Samuel talk about this a, few year, a couple of, uh, a while back, and I really started thinking about this thing in a different way. Now, I'm not trying to say the Bible says this is important, but I want you to look at this from a different perspective, just for a few minutes. How do I know Jesus was who he says he was? Because we know what Peter's story is, and Peter's story is that he gave his life to Jesus, and he was a spiritual train wreck. And Jesus died, and Peter went off the deep end. And Jesus rose, and it changed Peter's life and his destiny. Peter was the one who stood on Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection and, and convinced the crowds that Jesus was, was worth giving their life to. 3,000 people were baptized. Pretty good day in church, I would say. The Jerusalem church grew to 5,000 men in a short time, which means when you count women and children, it's probably between eight and 10,000 people in the Jerusalem church with no building, no organization, no structure. All they had going for them was this Jesus was dead and now he's alive. And it took Jerusalem by storm, it took the world by storm at the time. Peter's life changed because Jesus rose from the dead. James was a follower of Jesus who, like Peter, was kind of a spiritual train wreck sometimes. And, and Jesus died. James hid. Jesus rose. James began to speak about the resurrected Savior. And he was so certain that Jesus rose from the dead that when Herod arrested him and put him in the public square and to cut his head off, historians tell us that he preached literally until his head was severed from his body. And he was so fierce in his testimony about the resurrected Jesus that a Roman soldier who was there to kill him was killed also because he confessed his faith in Jesus. Because he was inspired by this guy who's about to give his life for someone who had risen from the dead. Thomas, remember Thomas is, you know, a lot of people are like Thomas. I'll believe it when I see it. That's his story, right? I'll believe it when I see it. And he saw Jesus, and it changed his life, and he gave his life. He was martyred for Jesus. Paul, a guy named Saul, um, thought Christians were crazy because they were running around talking about Jesus as if he'd risen from the dead, and he knew that wasn't possible. And on the way to Damascus, he met the resurrected Jesus, and it changed his life, and it changed the world. And he became a great church planner. Yes, it's because the Bible... So, but you look at the lives of the people in the Bible and how they changed and what they committed themselves to. 
We're here because, because we know and we believe that Jesus was exactly who he says he was, the resurrected Savior of the world. And the cross changed everything. So let's read Luke's account of the cross. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, entrust my spirit into your hands. With those words, he breathed his last breath. Jesus died like every other person who'd ever went on a cross did. So let's be clear. Jesus wasn't the first human being to ever die on the cross, and he wasn't the last. He wasn't even the only one that day. But he's the only one who ever rose from the dead. He's the only one who survived the cross. And when he died, the world proclaimed that Jesus was who he says he was. Nature rebelled. So look at Matthew's gospel. It says this, at that moment, that's the moment Jesus gave his last breath. At that moment, the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I don't have time to go into that, but that is, is physically impossible for that to happen. That's all you need to know. It is physically impossible for it to happen, except for something supernatural. The earth shook, rocks split apart, tombs opened. Why? Because Jesus died. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. In other words, when Jesus died, nature proclaimed that he was the son of God. And nature went nuts because Jesus was dead. But let's just look at nature. Look at this Roman soldier. Matthew 27. The Roman officer and the other soldiers of the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly was the son of God. Luke's account goes on to tell us how they worshipped. It changed these soldiers. So here's the question. This is the, this is the question. Are you living your life in such a way that proclaims that Jesus is really who he says he was? See, that's the question. I mean, it's cool to gather on Easter, and we're glad you're here. But at the end of the day, we're all going to go home. Some of us are going to do Easter egg hunts. We're going to go eat dinner with family. We're going to have a good day. We're going to enjoy the rest of our day. But if Je we don't live as if Jesus is who truly who he says he was, we don't believe that. If we don't live as if we take him seriously, what's the point of living at all? How can we be a witness for people? How can people want what we want if what we want is not different from what they have? Why would someone want what I have if my life is no different from, what they, from theirs? We should live our lives in a way that honors Jesus, that we know that we take him seriously. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Now, C.S. Lewis is really famous for his quote, mere Christianity, that Jesus was a, um, was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. In other words, he was a liar, he was a crazy man, or he was the Lord. Now, that's, we kind of strip that really down. I want to read for you the entire quote by C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Okay, and it's long. And it's going to be up on the screen in, in phases. Um, so you can see it, and you can go back and read it for yourself. But this is what C.S. Lewis says about Jesus, about the resurrection. He says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's what he's saying. 
That is the one thing we must not say. Then he says this. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So Lewis says, anyone who says what Jesus says, if he's just a dude, he's nuts. That's what he's saying. Any human being who claims what Jesus claimed is a, and is just a great guy, that dude's crazy. That's what he's saying. Then he says this, you must make it your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And then he says, closes with this, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In other words, Lewis says, really simply, either Jesus is the Lord of all, who's exactly who he says he was, or he's not. And if he's not, at the, at, the, at the best, he's, he was a liar, and at the worst, he was nuts. What he says so eloquently in mere Christianity is Jesus' life forces us to make a choice about him. Either he is who he says he was, or he wasn't. We celebrate today and every Sunday and every week and every Wednesday we have church. We celebrate because we believe Jesus is who he says he was. And we believe he's worth investing your life in. Now, the other thing we learned about Jesus is Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. And what Jesus said he would do is he would conquer death. Three occasions, he told his disciples he was going to die. Three times, they said, nope, nope, not going to let it happen. Three times, they were in denial about it. Then on the Last Supper, on Thursday before he was crucified, he told him again. And that's when Peter, when he was, you know, they tirade, we're not going to let this happen. I'll defend you. I'll fight for you. And he did, but then he ran, right? But Luke's account tells us about this, uh, particularly as does others, about these, these group of women who went to the tomb. Because everything happened really fast because it was Passover weekend. And... And one of the reasons that Jesus spent so little time on the cross is because it was Passover weekend. And that's a whole other story for a whole other day when we have time to talk about that. But these women were going to the tomb and they're walking to the tomb and what they think is that Jesus is dead. They didn't have a chance to really get his body ready. He says, we need to go get his body ready and um, they're soldiers. They're not going to help us. It's a big rock over the cave. Who, who's, we didn't think about that. We just got up and left, and who's going to help us? When they showed up, they found an angel with a message. Why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be, be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remember that he had said this. Nine words change human history, and it's really simple. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Changed everything. You see, we always talk about the cross of Jesus, and the cross is really important. But without the empty grave, it's just a cross. Without the empty grave, Jesus was just another guy who crossed Rome, just another guy the Jews didn't like, just another great teacher without the empty grave, he is either crazy or he was a liar. 
It is the empty grave that proves he is absolutely Lord, that he was who he says he was and did what he said he would do. And what he did was he rose from the dead to save us. He chose us. He did exactly what he said he would do. Changed human history. Here's the question. Is the empty grave changing your life? That, that's, that's, I mean, that's why we're here, right? Is the empty grave changing your life? Does the empty grave change how you treat people? Does the empty grave change how you do your job? Does the empty grave change how you treat your spouse? Does the empty grave change how you treat your kids or your parents? Does it change your outlook on life? Do you understand because the grave is empty that everything in this life is temporary and short in the broad scheme of eternity? That everything you own belongs to God. And everything we accumulate, possess, and accomplish means it's fleeting because one day we'll spend eternity in heaven or hell. It is the empty grave that proves that. It's the empty grave that proves that Jesus was who he says he was, did what he said he did. And because that's true, the last thing I want to talk to you about for a few minutes is that he will do exactly what he's promised to do. How do you know that? How, how can I be certain? And maybe, maybe you're kind of here today and you're kind of, well, how can you know for sure? Well, I could tell you about Peter and James and John and Thomas and Paul and Matthew and all these other guys and how their lives change. And, but the grave's empty. That's how I know he's going to do what he said he's do because he's done everything he said he would do. And what he's promised to do is that he would always be with us. Always be with us. He's promised us that his pre the presence of God and the person of the Holy Spirit. So basically when someone's baptizing the Christ... The Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's a promise from Jesus. That he'll be with us, that whatever we face in this life, we can handle it with him. But ultimately what he's promised to do is come back for us. John says it this way. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me. There are many rooms in my father's house. I would not tell you this if, I, if it were not true. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And, I, and after I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going away and I'm coming back. How can I be certain? Because he's kept every promise he's ever made. When's he coming back? No clue. Lots of books have been written about the return of Jesus. And let me just go ahead and just save you the trouble of reading those books. Any human being who says that when Jesus is coming back is either a liar or he's nuts. And there's only options. Either they're crazy or they're lying. Because Matthew's gospel tells us that not even Jesus knows when he's coming back. So if he doesn't know when he's coming back, how can mere people know when he's coming back? And we interpret the signs. and the t I mean, you just can't do that. Jesus will come back when he is ready. When the time fully comes, he will come back. And because of Easter, because of the empty grave, we know he'll return. And so here it is in a nutshell. This is the story of Easter. And this is something I say a lot. I haven't said it much here, but it's something you hear a lot from this point forward. So I've been kind of saving this for about eight months now. Ready? This is... The truth of Easter, this is the truth of why we gather. This is the truth of why the mission is so important. This is it. It's really simple. There's a heaven and there's a hell. 
All right. So a lot of people want to believe in heaven, but not hell. A lot of people think hell is real, is not heaven. You can't have one without the other. There is a place called heaven where people who give their life to Jesus will spend eternity. And there's a place called hell where people that don't will spend eternity. Every human being who has ever walked the planet, every human being who's ever had breath or ever will have breath will spend eternity in heaven or they'll spend eternity in hell. It was the cross and the empty grave that allows us to choose whether we spend eternity with Jesus or separated from him. Because there's a heaven and there's a hell, the mission of the one is urgent. Because there's a heaven and there's a hell, the example that we live our life by matters. Who we live our life for matters. You can't choose when you meet Jesus. You can't, meet, you can't leave this planet, breathe your last breath, meet Jesus and go, oh, I was just kidding. I was just, I was just sowing smokes. I, I want to be in heaven. Well, who wouldn't? We choose in this life where we spend eternity. And we get to choose because the grave was empty. Lord, we are... Um, you know, the truth is we, we, we celebrate Easter one day a week, uh, one day a year. The reality is every day that we have breath is a celebration of the empty grave. Every time we gather for a communion, it's a celebration of the empty grave. Every time we get to do the things we enjoy, we, it's a celebration of the empty grave. We may have Easter once a year, but we really celebrate Easter every day. At least that's what we're supposed to do. Lord, the choices we make in this life will depend on our, where we spend our eternity. I pray that you'll help us to choose you. Lord, if there's someone here today who is uncertain of their eternity, I pray that in just a few minutes they'll take a courageous step to, to walk towards you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand? Well, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Um, I have to say, Jay was kind of making me nervous while he was preaching this morning um, when he started reading from Luke chapter 23, uh, because that's the chapter that I'm about to read from. Um, but fortunately, uh, I've got the five verses in front of where he started. So God is good. Um, when I read through the Gospels, I like to pay attention to who gets Jesus, who understands him, who at least starts to grasp who he is, and why he's there. Because a lot of people miss it, especially the people you would kind of expect to catch on to what Jesus is doing. Um, the religious scholars of the day, of course, they fail to connect Jesus to the scriptures that they've studied their entire lives. And even Jesus' disciples, uh, the, the people that spent the most time with him, don't catch on for, for quite a while. Uh, but then some very unexpected people do understand Jesus. And my favorite example of that is the thief on the cross. So when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified with uh, a criminal on either side of him. Jesus in the middle and then two other people on, on either side. And we know from Mark's gospel 
that both of the criminals at first start to mock Jesus and say, you know, if you're really the Messiah, then, then save yourself and us. Get us out of here. Um, but then we read in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, uh, that one of them has a change of heart. I'm going to read that now. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So suddenly, hours or perhaps minutes before this criminal died, he had the most important realization of his life. He somehow understood that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and had come to save, to save him. Just before it was too late, he cries out to Jesus for mercy. And what a moment, right? Because even while Jesus is still on the cross, because he's on the cross, he's able to tell a repentant sinner that he has been rescued from, from eternal punishment. As we read this passage, I think it's natural for us to ask why. Why did this criminal ask for Jesus to remember him? What made him different from the man who was crucified on the other side of Jesus that only mocked and ridiculed him? Well, we certainly can't say for certain what exactly is going through uh, the man's head, but what we do know uh, is what he says to the other criminal. He says, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. So the difference would seem to be uh, that he realized that he was getting what he deserved. Before he could ask Jesus to save him, he had to admit that he was completely wicked. Otherwise, he never would have been able to ask Jesus for redemption. I've heard someone summarize the gospel like this. You are more wicked than you ever dared believe, and yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. The thief on the cross realized that he was utterly wicked, and yet when he cried out to Jesus for mercy, he discovered that he was more loved and accepted than he had ever dared hope. The bread and the cup remind us that when we cry out to Jesus for mercy, so are we. And then we'll come.